You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. A few years ago, I used to travel quite a bit. I used to fly, I guess I should say. And, uh, and, and I would go to different you know, places in the country, and it seems like I went to Texas a lot, and uh, a lot of different cities. And, uh, and you know, people would say, oh, what's it like there? And I would say, honestly, I don't know. I just, you know, you get off the plane, you're in some airport, you, you know, you catch the shuttle to the hotel, and the meetings are usually in the hotel or nearby there, and then you go to, after you're done with the meetings, you get back on the shuttle, and you get on the plane, you go home, and there's no, like, rhyme or reason of sense of where, you know, I could have been in another country, I could have been who knows where after that. You just kind of drop out of the sky and just do your thing and you leave. You know, I think Christmas can be like that for a lot of us if we're not careful. We're going about our own business and, you know, we're going through life and then all of a sudden it just kind of drops in the middle of what's going on and, and just, it, and we don't have context for it. We don't, it, it just, it kind of comes into the middle of it. Some of you guys really love Christmas. Uh, that's a good question. How many of you just like really love the Christmas season? All right. Oh, wow. A bunch of you guys. Oh, the, hold on. Not too many guys' hands are up, right? <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, but, and it just, it kind of drops, drops out of nowhere without context. So I've decided, some of you I told before were asking now that we're done with Judges, and uh, I'm glad we did Judges, but I'll be honest with you, I'm glad I'm done with Judges. Like, that was really, wow, are people really messed up. I'm ready to move on to something else. But uh, we're not going to do Thessalonians yet. I'm going to do a few weeks in, in uh, the, the first couple of chapters of Luke. And my real desire is, guys, is that we get in our minds and our hearts just the context of Christmas. Some of you have trusted Christ in the last two or three years. And, you know, Christmas is not owned by the Christian church, if you will. And, uh, and I think God has a little bit to say about Christmas. You know, it is about his son being born. And so uh, what I want us and what I'm praying for this Christmas season is that, you know, we get excited about the packages, we get excited about the holidays and the festivities and family, and for some people it's, it can be a difficult time because there's memories and things associated with it. But we want to not only know the context of Christmas, but we really want to know and to be able in our heart to move from just being excited about the festivities and the fun things and the parties in the year but to really be excited about the reason behind it, and that is our Lord Jesus. So turn with me, if you would, in the book of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to see the beginning of the Christmas story actually doesn't begin with Jesus. It actually begins with somebody else. And in fact, if you read carefully, Christmas is about two miracle births, not just one. There was actually a miracle birth that happened before Jesus was ever born, and Luke tells us about this. So read with me, if you would, in, starting in verse 5 of Luke 1. The Bible says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abia, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What all of that lineage means is they were both of the, the family of Levi, so they were both of a priestly bloodline, and it was that bloodline that was responsible to, to lead Israel spiritually. They were to minister to God before the people and from God to the people. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, all right? And the Bible goes on and says this, And they were both righteous before God, 
walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They kept the Old Testament law. They were faithful even though they lived amidst a people that were not nearly as faithful. But, in verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. I don't know what advanced is, but they were both well beyond childbearing years. Um, you know, what's the, what's the oldest that we've heard of somebody having a, a baby today? 50? Can you have a, a child at 50? Is that biological? Some of you are nodding your heads. 60? You're telling me that's possible? All right. So advanced, let's just say they were way beyond when they should have been having kids, and nobody was having kids at their age, okay? So I don't know how old they were. Maybe they were 65, 70. Most of you are like, Lord, I do not want a kid at 65. <laughs> and I'm right there with you, all right? So they didn't have kids, and they were older. Verse 8, now, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Huge honor. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him. So get the picture. He's inside. He's offering this incense to God. In fact, in, in, there were so many uh, priests that you would only be allowed to do this ministry once in your entire life. One time. Keep in mind, incense was burned twice a day, every day. Once in the morning, very early, like 6 or 6.30, I think, and once in the afternoon, like 3 or 3.30. And there were so many priests that if you were a Levite, you only got to do this once your entire life. So this was a big deal, right? He's excited. He's prayed up. I mean, he's ready to go, and he goes in there to burn and offer incense to, to God in heaven as a part of the offering and as a part of the, you know, the, the glory of God. And so while he's in there, everybody's outside praying, he's inside alone, and here's what happens in verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, seized him, gripped him. Keep in mind, he had heard stories like, what's it like there? What's, how did that go? And he you know, with the priest. And he had never heard of anybody seeing anything like that inside there, right? So all of a sudden, he's like, I am in trouble. It's always significant. People that tell me that they've seen Jesus, but don't end up falling on their face, I'm really doubtful whether or not they really saw Jesus or a true angel. Everybody in the Bible, when they see an angel, and they see, you know, some figure like that, they are scared out of their mind and just totally, totally troubled. As he was, he was gripped in fear in the middle of that moment. But the angel in verse 13 said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I almost wonder that verse 14, if, if Gabriel was telling him, yeah, you know that story, Zechariah, back in Judges of this dude named Samson, another miracle birth? Yeah, people are going to be really happy about your son. He's not going to be quite like that guy. I really almost wonder if the angel was kind of cluing him in. Similar story, honestly, miracle birth, and just we'll see in just a second that, that God wanted John the Baptist, or we know him as John the Baptist, uh, to be a, a, a Nazarite just like Samson. 
So in verse, verse 15, he says, Many will rejoice his birth. Verse 15, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. That's the Nazarite value. Remember we talked about that two or three weeks ago with Samson. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's amazing. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him. John's going to go before the Lord his God, which we know is Jesus, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Pray with me, would you? Father, as we begin and enjoy this Christmas season, Lord, I'm in awe of how not just that you loved us to send your son, but Father, I'm in awe in this story of how you use average people, people who are just trying to live life before you honorably and honestly being real in their heart, but being submitted to you. And Father, carrying the, the burden and the weight all those years of, of not having children, but Lord, you, you answered their prayers. And uh, Father, you, you brought the one who would pave the way for Jesus the Messiah. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to meet with you this morning in your word. These words are not only true, but they are powerful and they're meant for our benefit, our blessing, our growth. And Lord, I pray that your word would truly accomplish all that you've sent it out this morning. Help me to speak out of the truths that, that are here that you've shown me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christmas season, as Luke begins to unfold it for us, doesn't start with Jesus. The first four or five verses of Luke, he tells us, we won't read it, you can read it there or at home, but he, he's, he's writing out, uh, as a historian, very carefully, the, the history of who Jesus is and what happened. And we would naturally think that, you know, you start at the beginning of the story that we, he would have started with Mary and Joseph at least, if not baby Jesus himself. But he doesn't. He starts actually with another person, a person named John and his parents, a miracle birth, a birth that would be predicting uh, or that would be preparing the way for Jesus to come. So for you and I to understand Christmas, to kind of avoid the dropping out of the sky and just, you know, what is this thing that Jesus, you know, has come to this earth? Okay, you know, he's God's son. I get that. But, you know, kind of just having something to not really understand in the context of in which it came. But not only that, not understanding the context of what God means it to mean for you and for me today in our lives. More than just a, an event we talk about or sing about or that we celebrate and he starts with the birth of John. Now, I want you to notice three things this morning, and that is that when God is up to something, he tends to use people. When God is wanting to do something big, wanting to do something new, he tends to use average, ordinary people. Now, he didn't use people when he created this world. That was something he accomplished himself. 
His word went out and he created this, word, this world simply by the power of his mouth. He is the only one in this universe whose word has ability and has a power. Every parent that's ever lived wished their words had power and they don't. But God's word does have power and he created this world completely just by the, the power of his own speech. And the Holy Spirit hovered and, and created this world. When God then also brought redemption into this world, buying our souls back from sin and death in the grave by sending His Son Jesus, that wasn't quite a human people kind of thing. Hang with me. Jesus is certainly a man, 100% man, but He's also the Son of God, 100% God. And if I can understand those two truths together, uh, I would probably be a wealthy man. I don't fully comprehend it. But I accept what the biblical record says, that those two things are there. And so God, in order to bring salvation to this world, didn't use an ordinary man. But outside of those things, when I read and look at the Bible, when God is up to something, He uses people. He uses people like you and me, average ordinary people. If we were to sit down and talk to Zechariah and Elizabeth in that day, they wouldn't have seen, them think, seen themselves as anything special. You know, he was just one of thousands of priests doing his daily duty and dealing with the chores of life like you and me. If he were alive today, he'd have been out snow blowing and shovel snow on Monday. You know, it just, you just do what you got to do to make your way in this world. And this was his week and his time to serve. And, and in the middle of it, God met him in an incredible way. Uh, sometimes we, if we're not careful... We, we tend to make service to God something bigger than it is, that there needs to be an angel showing up in our bedroom and, you know, calling us out to do something, and I've got this huge big task to do. But I want you to notice that when God uses people, He uses average, ordinary people, and it usually comes about through them just living their life before God and doing what they're supposed to do. There's nothing uh, amazing about them whatsoever. And yet God reached down the middle of that and he said, I'm going to give you a child. And he's not going to be an ordinary child. In fact, because of it, he, God, through Gabriel, was telling them, Mom, you shouldn't be drinking any wine or alcohol, much like God told uh, uh, Samson's mom not to do that as well because he was going to be a special child, one whose life was completely committed and dedicated to God and that that was a picture of his separateness, if you will, from the world. And if you know the story of John, I mean, he was a weird guy anyway. As a typical priest, he should have been, you know, in the temple and serving. But he's this guy more of a, he would have been like, what's the, you know, like living in the wilds of Alaska or, you know, one of these crazy shows like, you know, off the grid and, I mean, and wearing, you know, camel's hair and just, anyway, he was a true prophet in the fullest sense of that prophet. And God said, I'm preparing this whole salvation thing that I'm up to. And he's the very point of the spear, if you will. He's the one who's paving the road, making it possible. Whenever we see road construction that happens, you know, before they surface the road, the crews go through and they dig it up and they, they make all the preparation. They do all of that. That was John the Baptist's job. His job was to do all the digging. His job was to find all the rocks. His job was to you know, to, to find the bad places, to blow things up, to fill things in, to make the road ready for Jesus to come and for people to be ready to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, for their hearts to be ready. That was his job. God still uses people. 
average ordinary people who are living their life doing their own thing. Think about Gideon. God came to Gideon, threshing wheat. Gideon, I got a job for you. God came to Moses. Moses just taking care of sheep. Plain, ordinary, mundane job as could possibly be. God said, I got a job for you, Moses. Jesus came to the apostles. They are out busy fishing and just providing for their family. And God says, I've got something for you to do. God has a tendency to use people who are being faithful in the small things, faithful in living their life, but live their life in such a way that they honor God in the process and live it in an integrated way. So I want to challenge you this morning that you and I should never underestimate what God is doing in our life through us just living our ordinary life. We should never underestimate that, and we should never underestimate what God wants to do through us when we tend not to see it and we tend to minimize it and think, well, I didn't do much anything. I just, I just teach in the kids' program once a month. That's no big thing. I... I didn't do a lot. I just I shoveled the driveway for my neighbor. I check in on them. I, I've shared the gospel with them. I've invited in church. That's, that's no big thing. No, when we pay attention and love the people around us that God has called us to, that he's, he's said that we should do that, I want you to know God in heaven is honored by that, and those are the very things that he expects us to do. Now, if God wants to send you an angel and call you to do something else and for you to have a kid when you're 70 years old, God bless you. I'm glad it's you and not me. But God will do some amazing things in people's lives, but every bit of it is 100% God, and we should never sell that short. Second thing I want you to recognize, not only does God tend to use people, average ordinary people, and he wants to use people that are doing something for him, God also tends to use people who are living righteously, who are living godly. Now, I know we just finished Judges. Sean, there weren't a lot of righteous people in Judges. You're absolutely right. That Samson guy was a mess. Yes, he was. That Jephthah guy was a disaster. Absolutely, he was. The story of Judges is that God was using people in spite of themselves. He was, he was using people and his sovereign authority and power in this world, and at some level, it was the best he had to work with, which is pretty sad. But when you read the Bible from, from cover to cover, God tends to use people who are living righteously before him. Notice what the Bible says about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Better words cannot be written about anyone. You and I would do so well for these words to be true in our, in our life. The Bible says in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly and all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's no small thing. Have you opened up Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy lately and seen all the laws and the commandments that God had in there for His people Israel? There's one or two in there. There's four or five. There's a whole bunch. Most of us, if we were living that day, would still be trying to figure out what all of those things were. And this couple had dedicated and committed their lives to God that they were committed to following all of those. Not like what we tend to do at times, kind of pick and choose, almost like the going to buffet, right? You know, the, if you go to the Chinese buffet, oh, I like that. We load up on that. Like, oh, I'm going to pass on that. I'm like, oh, that looks good. You know, ooh, you know, I have a little bit of that. We tend to, if we're not careful, pick and choose when we read the Bible. Oh, I'm all about this. But when we hit something over here, I don't know if I want to do that, God. That, that hurts, huh? No, this couple wasn't like that. They were so committed to God that they were careful 
to obey him and all of those things. You see, when God wanted to pave the way for Jesus to come, he needed a people, an average ordinary people, persons, who were committed to him but lived their life righteously so that he could in turn bring a man who wasn't corrupted in the religious system of the day, but who would be raised by two parents who feared God and loved God and would be careful to teach him all the ways of God and model that before him and to, to help him to know the, the love and the justice and the, the care and the power of God, to put that first and foremost in their, in their hearts before their child. God tends to use righteous people. For you and for me, we're, we stand in a little bit of a different time than what Elizabeth and Zechariah did. They lived in the Old Testament. Well, Sean, this is in the New Testament. We're reading Luke. Luke's in the New Testament. I know, but the Bible of their day went, stopped at Malachi. And they, are, they were living out faithfully all that God had put in front of them. And so their righteousness was bound up in the coming of the Messiah that they trusted but what they followed were all of the statutes and all of the ordinances and all of the commands and all of the judgments that were in the law. Today, you and I, since Jesus has come, we look back to Jesus and we trust Him as our Messiah, as our Savior and as our Lord. And what the Bible says is the righteousness that you and I have, God places that on our life. He, he calls us that. It's a Declaration is the judge of the universe, the judge has ruled that you and I are righteous. When we surrender our life to, to Jesus as Lord, when we recognize that He died on the cross for our sins, and we put our complete faith in that, turning away from all of the junk and the stuff that we talked about in Judges and all of the sin in our hearts, and we trust God's solution, in that moment, God calls you and me righteous. God uses righteous people. We're saved and forgiven no matter what we've done, the stuff that we feel shame over, the stuff that we feel guilty over, the stuff we grieve over. God says, I've forgiven. I see nothing but Jesus' righteousness. Now, for you and me, it goes one more step, not necessarily beyond that, maybe along with that, is God expects you and me to follow the principles of His Word. You know, we're not following legalistic commands where we do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. I mean, there's a little bit of that, if you will. But God teaches us in the New Testament principles. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's principles in the New Testament actually always go deeper and farther than the rules of the Old Testament. Always. Grace expects more than the law because God changes us. And he, and he deals with the motivations of our heart, not surface layer rules, but he gets at the motivations and he gets at the heart issues kinds of things. So all of the things, whether it's our sexual purity, all of those flow out of a life that should be committed to God and should be committed to loving the people around us appropriately. That's why when he, the Bible tells us that our sexual expression should be within the, the identity of a marriage, it's not just some external rule that God has out there that you can choose to follow or not follow. What he's actually saying is that's the expression of love that's appropriate between a husband and wife, and it is such an incredible, powerful, and amazing relationship 
that it should be reserved for that sacred relationship, that sacred matrimony, that sacred entity. And you're not showing love when we you know, express that outside of that. So, so you and I, to come back around to this, God tends to use righteous people. He wants to use people who have a relationship with Him, but secondly, who are growing in that relationship, who are living in that relationship and following Him. Sean, are you saying that I have to be perfect for, in order for God to use me? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm actually saying God considers you perfect just as you are, no matter what you're doing. But if you and I yield ourselves in sin, and if you and I don't live in our life holistically following Jesus, I am saying that God can't use you nearly as much as He wants to. I am saying to you that David was a man after God's own heart, and he was an amazing king in the Old Testament. But when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then in turn had her husband executed to cover up the pregnancy, he was never the same man after that. His walking down that road limited what God could do and what God wanted to do through him. So for you and for me, I want us to all be excited that God wants to use exactly us. Nobody else, don't have to be anybody special, every one of us. Some, it, how, how many of you were part of River coming to our church three years ago? How many of you have been here more than three years? <laughs> I want everybody else to look around the room. That's not a very big group. Um, there's a lot of new folks in our church the last two years. If you've been coming the last six months, the last year, you might say, I didn't know that. No, we were a very different church three years ago. So I want, if you were newer, what I've noticed is it seems like a lot of people have come to River because you hear God's word and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and what this whole God thing is all about. God's doing something in your life. You've kind of looked around and realized, you know what, life's not working. I need help, and maybe God's able to do something about it. Some others of you have known Jesus and known Christ for a long time, been going to other churches, and you've just come, different circumstances in your life where God's brought you here, and, and, and you feel like this is church, you know, your church home, or at least for now, and some of you have you know, formalized that and become members and, and all of that. So I want, regardless which of those groups that you're in, I want, us to, want you to know that God has things that he wants to use you in life, not just in church, but in your own home, in your own life, in your own family, in your own work. So God, when he uses average ordinary people, he uses you in your workplace. He uses you in your neighborhood. He uses you in your family. Has nothing to do with River or whatever church you've ever been a part of or church that you're in now. If you're new to knowing Jesus, God wants to use you to touch other people's lives, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, apart from everything you see here that we do. But God also wants all of us to, uh, wants to use us through and in our church family in some small ways, big ways, and all of that. And many of you guys who've come in the last few years have jumped in and have served and honestly, Dan and I sit, we meet every Monday afternoon around 3.30 and we we meet and, and, and talk and, and try to figure out what God's doing and pray and, and work through all the stuff behind the scenes. And we're blown away at how many people are just stepping up and serving in, in amazing ways that you guys have jumped in on that. 
So if you are newer at River, my commitment to you is that regardless of where you are in your, your life and ministry, if you're like, Sean, I don't know if God is using me at all, I would love to talk to you. Because I'd love to help you explore where that is, what that looks like in your own life that has nothing to do with River. Because God is probably using you there and you don't know it or he wants to. And there's probably some opportunities you haven't thought of. And if you see some things, you're like, Sean, I want to do some stuff at River, but I don't know how to. I'd love to help you walk through that and figure that out. Because God wants to use average ordinary people. But I will say this. God can use you a whole lot more when you live for him. When you just put him at the center of your life. What I'm amazed is I get the picture here of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were people who just were dedicated to God. This angel Gabriel comes to him, comes to him and says, God has heard your prayer. Don't let a couple of these truths get by you. They were living obediently to God and they were relating to him regularly in prayer. See, you and I can't be righteous people following Christ, growing in Him, even while we're forgiven and God changing us, bringing our life into alignment, much like when you get new tires put on your car and you take it in the shop and they put it on the machine and they test it and they got to pull it in and tweak it and get all your tires, your, your frame and all of that into alignment. God is bringing our life into alignment after we trust Christ. He calls us good, but then He literally begins making us good. And at times, that can feel like we're a little bit on the torture rack, you know, like it's, you know, pushing us in because we've got old habits and sin and nature and patterns and all of that, and God's breaking that and confronting us with it. But all the while, He's growing us in righteousness, and He wants to, to use us beyond that. And, but he, we can't truly live righteously without being a person who prays. We can't live righteously without being a person who has, dives into God's word. How did Zechariah and Elizabeth know what rules and commands to follow? They made much of reading God's word. You see, for you and for me, that means if we're going to live in a way that honors God, and we're going to see the God of heaven use us, in other people's lives and be in that environment and where God is working and be used of God in small ways and big ways and all of that, we have to be a people of God's book because it's, about, it's His words to us. You can't really know the God of heaven, know the God of the Bible, apart from reading it and, and seeking God in that. And you can't really know the God of heaven well without spending time with Him in prayer. I used to see those two things as kind of disciplines. You know, this is a discipline. Discipline's the stuff that you do that you don't like to do, right? Isn't that kind of what a discipline is? That's when I think of it like, well, he's so disciplined in his exercise, so disciplined in eating has it, so disciplined. Discipline for me is always doing the stuff that we don't like to do, but we know we're supposed to do it. And reading the Bible and prayer, I used to think of it in those terms, but to be honest with you, they really are just relationship stuff. It's how you get to know God. And it's, yes, it's a good rhythm, if you will, a good habit and pattern to do. But I want to challenge you and encourage you that if you see this as something, well, I've got to do this because I know I'm supposed to do it, to change your thinking on that and to say, I, I want to be in this rhythm of life where I'm spending time with God. Look, Elizabeth and Zacharias were busy. 
They didn't have Maytag, no Amana, no Whirlpool, no microwaves, no indoor plumbing, no snow blowers, no cars. I, I think they were busy living life, don't you? And yet they spent time with God. So we're all super busy. But we're so busy that we need to spend that time with God so that God meets us in the middle of it. I want to challenge you this Christmas season to not allow Christmas, to not allow work, to not allow the pressures of family to edge God out of your life. But instead, seek Him and say, God, I want to know you. Help me to live my life faithfully to you, to know you in the middle of my work, living before Him and all the, the average, ordinary, mundane things. And when God does that, He might give you some other, even more average and ordinary things. Sean, this was a supernatural birth. This John the Baptist dude was filled with the Holy Spirit from inside his mother's womb. How is that possible? Honestly, I don't know. And I'm going to leave that theology to another sermon, another Bible study, and a whole other time. But God had filled that young child's life before he was ever born, before he ever even knew the name of Jesus or the Messiah, he was already there. It was a whole amazing story before God of God's just sovereign work and hand in his life in the middle of that. And then what God called Zacharias and Elizabeth to do was more ordinary stuff. What he just said to them is, okay, you're going to be parents now. He didn't say they were going to go to the moon. He didn't say they were going to you know, be the CEO of, of whatever company. He didn't say, oh, you're going to be uh, the next Billy Graham, you know, you're just, okay, you're going to have a kid and make sure you do a really good job raising that kid. That's your job. That's what God's calling was to them. And that was a powerful and profound thing because God used John the Baptist in an amazing, amazing way. So don't ever sell that short. Third thing, and I'm done. I'm going to end quickly because I know it's kids day and all our young kids are in here ready to receive the offering and want to decorate cookies here in a minute. But the third thing I want us to recognize, when God uses you, prerequisite is living godly to be used well, but what God wants to do is to turn people's hearts to Him. That's what He really wants to do. That's what John was supposed to do. This baby that was going to be born, he was to turn the hearts back to God. Look what the Bible says in verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Not all, not a few, but many. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Go read the very last two verses of all the Old Testament in Malachi. God predicted that Elijah would come and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. John, the John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is that guy. Not Elijah literally, no reincarnation, but a, an Elijah-like guy, a prophet and to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You see, what God wants to do is to use you and me as we live our life, minding our own business, but seeking Him and pursuing Him in His Word, doing the best that we know how to on busy, difficult days, on Mondays and Tuesdays, making our way, juggling all those things, but He wants to turn you, to use you to turn the hearts of people around you to him. In many ways, we're still carrying out the ministry of John. Now, John was preparing people for Jesus coming, but guess what? You and I are preparing people for Jesus coming again, coming back. We're in that same boat. People need to be ready. Jesus is coming back. 
And they need to be ready for that. John was, that was his job, and you and I are continuing that. What God really wants to do is not to provide all the education in the world that people can possibly have. He doesn't want to make the whole world middle-class America. White picket fence, two cars, 2.2 kids, or whatever the latest demographics are. He's not, that's not his thing. What God is trying to do is to introduce a world that is lost, messed up, deep in their own sin, like we saw in the book of Judges, without hope, without salvation, and to save them from an eternity separated from him. And he wants you and me to, as we live our life, to point people to that reality, to, to use us to help that to happen. Now for that, some of you here this morning have never really trusted Christ. You're in the need of the John's ministry or the church's ministry. You see, for us to turn other people's hearts back to God, our own heart has to be turned toward God. And as I've watched and have talked through so many people over the years, in everybody's life as they're beginning to understand and understand, wow, I really am not that nice of a person. Wow, I need something, I need God, but I don't know how this all works. There's usually obstacles in their life along the way. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's, it's much what John was going to be facing when he went out. When John did his ministry, he was not preaching in the temple. He wasn't in the, the synagogues. He was, he was out in the desert. He was out in this crazy place. And he was telling people that they were messed up and sinners before holy God and they had better turn and convert to God or they were in trouble. And the Jews were like, what do you mean convert? We're already Jews. We're already people of God. You see, those individuals had to, they in many ways had to reject some of the traditional stuff of their world and to say, God, I need you. So some of you this morning may be facing an obstacle in your heart of, well, what did my mom and dad believe, or what are they going to think, or my family, or my heritage, or my culture? And you've got to overcome that obstacle. And you've got to come to the place where you say, you know what, God and Jesus, you're worth everything. You're first. And if it means that other people are not going to be happy with my decision, so be it, but you're first. Some of you have to overcome the obstacle of skepticism. I don't know if I can believe all of that stuff. I don't, I don't, know if that's possible. Whenever anybody doubts what you say, how does that make you feel? Not very good, does it? It almost can be offensive, right? See, when we doubt the things that God says, it's actually a personal thing toward Him. Because we're doubting His words, we're doubting His actions. Zechariah actually struggled with that. This angel came and told him, you're going to have a baby, and he's like, wait a minute. I'm smarter than that. How in the world is this possible? And Gabriel said, look, it's going to happen, dude, one way or the other. And just so that you know it's going to be possible, you're not going to be able to say another word. <laughs> Can you imagine for, I guess, nine months or however long it took for her to get pregnant and have the baby, the last words he heard himself uttered was, this isn't possible. God was hammering in his brain and in his mind his lack of faith and his unbelief and doubting what God said. So some of you, the obstacles need to be removed. See what John the Baptist came to do? He was pulling rocks out of people's lives, skepticism, doubt, fear, overcoming bad teaching, bad things in their past, overcoming shame of just like, I can't trust Jesus because all the shame I have. 
And his job was removing all of that. As you live your life in relationship with people that don't know Jesus, you model that before them, your hope and your future and your joy. You will have conversations with individuals along the way, and God wants to use you to remove some of those obstacles out of their life. Sometimes you don't say things so much. It's just by what you do. Sometimes it'll be some serious, heavy conversations. But God wants to use you in those situations in that world that's out there. And he will use you if you simply follow him, trust him, live before him, and say, God, I'm here, use me. He will do that. So I want to challenge you to put your focus in your ministry, in your heart, in your life, that what matters this season is that God sent his son Jesus to save us, to change us. And in turn, he wants us to be a force to be used of him to bring that same gift to the world. Today, God uses the Holy Spirit in people's lives. John 17, 16 talks about that. He wants to use us as the church. He uses his Bible. And if we do this along the way, not only do we see God change other people's lives, but we have, and I don't understand how this works, but the incredible blessing and joy and affirmation of God using us. That's what God told Elizabeth and Zacharias, that you're going to have great joy. You know, they've had sorrow and pain by not having a child, and, and that's, that's difficult in our culture today, and some of you guys know that, the cry of a heart when you can't have a child. It was three times that in their, their culture in their day. And God said, in verse 14, he says, and, uh, and you, you personally will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You know what their joy and gladness was? It wasn't just because they finally got to have a baby. Their joy and gladness came because they saw God work in their life. He did give them a baby, and they had a joy, but they then watched him, and they saw day in and day out the affirmation of God working in their midst. So this morning, I don't know how you're processing all this. I don't know what burdens you're carrying, what concerns you have, what joys you have. I don't know if you came in this morning down or high, needing to be encouraged or, or already walked in the door encouraged with joy. I want you to, to think this morning and say, God, what do I need to walk away with this today? Maybe you need to be encouraged to say, God, thank you that you're already using me. Forgive me for selling that short. Forgive me for underestimating just the mundane things that I have to do going through life. But God, help me to know your joy. Maybe if you've gone through life, you just kind of, and maybe even hitting this Christmas season, I, I, it, begin, it happens to me every year. I have to kind of consciously fight upstream, if you will, with all of the avalanche of the messaging from media and culture and all that around us like wait a minute this is all fun but I'm really sick of Amazon right now and trying to figure out the next gift that I need to buy and acting like the whole world hinges on me getting the right size or the right whatever just like wait a minute this is really about Jesus can I just get back to that and maybe that's all you need to do this morning or maybe God has challenged you that hey you've been it's that selective person taking some of the principles of God, but you've been letting some areas of your life slide, and God is saying, hey, that's you. You need to deal with that. 
Maybe God is saying there's obstacles in your life that you're struggling through and trusting me, but you really need to trust me that Jesus is the one who died for you. And none of the excuses and none of the obstacles, none of the rationalizations in our mind are sufficient when we compare them against the reality and the glory of who God is and who Jesus is. And maybe you need to step forward in that faith and surrender your life to him today. So I don't know what God has spoken into your heart this morning and what's hitting you, but I would urge you as our team comes up and as I pray to simply respond to God right where you are. Maybe you need to step forward and trust Jesus in your heart. Do that. Maybe you need to thank him, pray for him. Maybe you simply need to trust that God has this. Maybe you were more of the Zacharias and Elizabeth. You're carrying a burden and you need to simply this morning say, God, I trust you. I, I trust you. But whatever it is, won't you respond to him today? Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you for this amazing miracle story. Thank you for the ministry of John that paved the way for Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to be a people that removes rocks, removes obstacles, and helps pave the way for Jesus' return in the lives of those around us. Lord, help us to be that church, I pray. Help us to serve, to give ourselves to you on our own time, to give ourselves to you here collectively at the river, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.